Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. What does it look like to live a life of destiny? John the Baptizer spent his whole life paving the way for greatness to come, and it changed the world. You can have that same impact. Uh, Anyhow, we're starting this new series today, and I'm a little under it today, so uh, if you could, uh, while we're teaching, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you could just give me like a, God help him out, (laughs) I'd appreciate that, you know, your prayers, so... But um, it's okay. We'll, we'll recover at some point. But. So if you want to follow along with us, we're going to be in the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book, Luke chapter 1. The verses will be on the screen, but if you have a Bible app or a Bible and you want to follow along, you can do that on your own. Don't just take it for granted that uh, what I'm saying is the truth, but check it out in God's Word for yourself and see if it isn't what God's actually saying. So... Uh, how many of you guys, I need to do like a little survey today. How many of you guys are sports watchers? Sports watchers, like you like to watch sports. Come on now. Got to be more than that, right? Raise your hand. Let's raise our hands. It doesn't mean you're Pentecostal if you raise your hands. Okay, all right? Who's a sports watcher? Sports watcher. All right, it's not as many as I would think, actually. It looks like maybe about half the room, okay? There are different types of sports watchers. You guys get that, right? There's different types of sports watchers. And I have a very difficult time watching sports with people who don't watch sports like I do. Okay? So I'm going to tell you how I watch sports, and then I'm going to tell you the other ways people watch sports. You can tell me what kind of a sports watcher you happen to be. But I'm the kind of sport, and I love watching sports. I don't know anybody who loves sports more than me. They might be able to love it as much as me, but no, no more than me. I love sports. I love to watch Football, basketball, and baseball, pretty equally, all three of them. And so almost all year, I've got some sport on that I want to see. But I am the kind of sports watcher that really prefers watching stuff by myself, okay? I, uh, I don't say anything during the game. I just watch. That's all I do. I watch. If my team wins, I'm happy about that. And if they lose, I'm sad about that. Now, if they win, I don't burn anything in the yard, Okay, and if they lose, I don't punch anything. You get, you get what I'm saying? Like, there's a little bit of like an even keeled attitude to my sports watching. Okay, so that's that's the kind of sports watcher I am. I don't comment. I don't believe that the commentators can hear me or that the referees will change their call if I shout loud enough. So I don't really say anything. I just kind of watch the game. Right? How many of you watch sports like that? You just kind of a silent watcher, right? That's me. Okay. Not very many of us. Not very many. Me, Jamie, and Kenny. <laughs> we should get together and watch a game sometime because I could watch a game with you guys, right? But uh, there's a second kind of sports watcher. This is the, like, the, uh, uh, the sports watcher who gets like, emotionally overblown in the game. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if their team scores a touchdown or hits a home run, then like, they have to get out of their seat right? Like, they're going to jump. And I don't know if I'm just lazier than they are, but, like, I'm not getting up. And if their team does, you know, poorly, they may, like, cuss, throw something, punch the wall, hit the floor, something like that. They're, they're like an angry sports watcher if their team is doing poorly. Now, how many of you are sports watchers like that? You see, none of you own it. You don't want to own it in church. Yeah, I knew you would say that, Sam. Yeah. So, again, some of the, okay, then there's the third sports watcher, this is what my wife falls into, okay? Now, she doesn't really even like to watch sports, but she's kind of like taking that on because I do in our marriage, right? But she's what I call the superstitious sports watcher, okay? This is the sports watcher that somehow believes 
that whatever they do in their bedroom or in their living room affects the game even if it's 3,000 miles away. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, well, I left the room to get a sandwich, and when I came back, they had scored a touchdown, so I'll leave again. They think somehow the touchdown was scored because they left the room, right? So this is my wife. How many of you are superstitious sports watchers? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kenny's all of them. <laughs> How many of you raise your hand no matter what the question is? <laughs> okay, so of course I am like a super reasonable kind of guy, and so... I bust out my super reasonable, logical approach to explaining to my wife how the referees and the two teams that we're watching, they don't care what you're doing at home. They don't care. They don't even know. There's no way possible for them to know what you're doing. You can't affect the game from where you are. That What you wear during the game doesn't make a difference, right? How much you watch or how little you watch. She got to this point where, like, she'll come into the room and, like, not look at the screen, because she thinks if she's looking at the screen, they start to lose. And then what's even greater about that is if she starts watching the game and my team starts to do bad or badly, then she'll say, she'll say, see, I told you it's because I was watching. I should stop watching. It's like she doubles down on it, you know. Like, so there's all different kinds of sports watcher. But that one stuck out to me this week specifically because I started to think how much time do we waste doing things that we believe will lead to something greater when in actuality they have absolutely no impact on what's coming next? They don't make or break any of it. We waste our time all the time on stuff that makes no impact, doesn't pave the way for anything great to happen in our life, doesn't set the stage for anything bigger or better to come, doesn't do anything to increase our impact on the world around us, but we believe it does. Spinning our wheels like guinea pigs, like hamsters kind of exercising in our wheel. Just keep moving and moving, doing the same stuff over and over again, but it's really things that are meaningless. Today I want to talk to you about a story in Luke chapter 1. It's not really the story of John the Baptist, though that's the life we're going to cover during this series. I want to talk to you today mostly about his parents um, when he was announced to be born. Got me thinking about this idea of like making an announcement. And, and what we're going to look at today is the story of when an angel showed up to John's dad. And he said, you're going to have a son. He announced it, right? And it got me thinking, like, if you're going to have a baby and you get to pick between like finding out between... Uh, between finding out that you're going to have a baby by like a uh, pregnancy test from Walmart or like an angelic announcement, you would take the angelic announcement, right? Like there's something that seems like more exciting. It's not that the pregnancy test is inaccurate or insufficient to let you know, but it's just somehow it's like there's something kind of like a cool vibe about like Angel showed up, told me I was going to have a son. That's awesome, right? And so I would have picked the angelic announcement. That got me thinking about our vacation this summer. Right? So we went on vacation this summer to Lakeside, Ohio. Uh, we went, um, Opie and Tuesday went, Opie's parents, Faith went, and uh, Mimi went, and Sam went, right? And so there was this, they have all kinds of stuff to do there, and there was one day uh, specifically where Opie and Tuesday and Sam and I were playing shuffleboard. All right, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like only old people play shuffleboard. I understand. And there were some old people there, but there were younger people there too, right? It was 
And that was like really the first time I had ever really played, I think, shuffleboard. Maybe just goofing around before, but that was the first time I ever really played. And when you play with like Sam, you play to win. You know what I mean? Like Sam doesn't play to lose. I mean, you play to win. So yeah, we play to win the game, right? Herm Edwards. Okay. So Sam and I were on a team against Opie and Tuesday. And so Opie and I are at the one end of the shuffleball court. Is that what you call it? Court? Board? Concrete slab? I don't know. And Sam and Tuesday were at the other end, right? And so if you've never played shuffleboard, you know that you're trying to get your little disc things to the other end and these points, get these points. But you can also like hit your discs into the other team's discs and knock them out of getting points, right? And so Sam started to get a little irritated because Tuesday kept knocking her discs she, she kept knocking Sam's discs off the board. And she couldn't get any points. Of course, Sam accused her of cheating, you know, told her she was, you know, not a very honest person, all these things. But she's like knocking her discs off the board over and over again, okay? And I need you to picture this, that there are like hundreds of people in the streets and everywhere and golf carts and walking around by the water. And, and, and on the shuffleboard court itself, there was probably, you know, 50 people playing shuffleboard, right? I mean, is that right? On all the different lanes, right? And so we're standing, and it just, it overflows in Sam. And at one point she goes, and remember, they're like 30 feet apart. They're not like right next to each other. At one point Sam goes, I will murder you. <laughs> I just started laughing so hard. And there's like couple old couples just, let's get out of here, honey. You know, they left, you know, like, what just happened here? She said, I will murder you. And I thought, you know, that's the kind of thing you might want to say one-on-one instead of in an announcement, right? Because <laughs> there's something about an announcement that kind of gets everybody else involved in the information, right? And so that's what's going on in this story. An angel's going to show up And he's going to make an announcement about the birth of John. We call him today John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, right? He wasn't Southern Baptist. He was just a guy who performed a lot of baptism. So they called him John the Baptist, right? And so uh, this is the story of when an angel showed up to tell his parents, you're going to have a child and his name's going to be John. Now this happened several times in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, the most famous that many of you may be familiar with is when the angel showed up and tells Mary, behold, you're going to have a child. You'll call his name Jesus, right? Everybody kind of has heard that one if you've ever been in church on Christmas. But there's several other occurrences of this. The same thing happens to Abraham in the Old Testament, and the same thing happens Um, just before Samuel is born. And so this happens over and over again in the Bible. But this instance here is when an angel shows up and tells John's parents, you're going to have a baby. And he starts to tell them what the baby's going to be like. And so today I want to talk to you guys about what I called a great destiny. A great destiny. And so just to get you involved a little bit, can you look at the person next to you and just say, I believe there's a great destiny for us. I know there's nobody beside you, Kenny, but if there's somebody beside you, just look at them and just say, I believe there's a great destiny for us today. I believe. So now you're involved, right? Now you're involved, okay? So don't tune out. Tune in. And I believe God has a great destiny for you. The problem is that for most of us, we could have very different ideas of what destiny looks like, right? Destiny for you might be something completely different than it is for even your spouse, 
or even your kids or your next door neighbor. You could have a seemingly similar life to somebody else, but have two completely different views of what destiny is. I want to show you this clip, and this is what I think a lot of people think destiny is in their life. Is that what most people think of as destiny? It's like some random chance events where you meet the girl of your dreams and then you just say the right thing at the right moment and if nothing messes it up, then like, oh, the stars align, right? And you fulfill it. But what if that isn't what destiny is? What if it isn't so random? What if it's something to be pursued instead of something to just fall on you? What if it's something to be gone after? And so I want to give you today some principles from God's Word about a great destiny in your life, about the destiny John was going to have, and it turns out is the same destiny God has for you today. Now, in church, a lot of times, the word destiny isn't used. The word that gets used in church most of the time is calling. You guys ever hear that word calling in church? Like, Brother David, Brother David, we're just praying that the Lord will make his calling on your life clear. You ever hear, like, that's kind of the word we use in church, right? But what they mean is that your destiny that God has kind of like made you for something specific and we want you to find that in life, right? Your calling. And so uh, it made me think of a seminar I heard where a guy was talking about <coughs> calling. And he was talking about this idea of, <coughs> sorry, of God giving you like a specific destiny or a calling in life. And so he gave us two definitions of a calling. I'm going to give them to you today, okay? Here's the first one. He said, a calling is where your passions and talents meet the world's greatest needs. I like that. I like that. I I heard that and I thought, I could preach a whole sermon on that one. That's a good one. I like that, right? Where what you're good at and what you love to do intersects with what the world needs help with. And you take what you're good at and what you're passionate about and you dive in and you help everybody with it. You help the world at their point of greatest need, right? Sounds good, right? And I thought, man, you could preach like a whole series on that about destiny or calling. But the problem with that definition of calling is it's really all about me. It's like, oh, if I can hone my skills and increase my abilities and my my capacity, then I could make a difference in this world and help everybody who needs help. It's a little self-centered. There's another definition of calling that he gave in that seminar. And this is what he said. He said this. (laughs) Maybe. It's when Jesus calls a man. And this is what Jesus says to him. He bids him come and die. That line was a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor during World War II and was executed by the Nazis for helping to smuggle Jewish people out of Nazi Germany. And he said... That's what a calling is. When Jesus calls a man, he doesn't say, oh, what are you gifted at and passionate about? Where can you make the greatest impact on this world? No, he says, you come and you die to yourself. You make me everything and you nothing. The calling that's on your life, the destiny that awaits you, is often blinded or blinding. We can't see it. Because we're so wrapped up in that first definition of thinking, what am I good at? What am I passionate at? That's how we decide what college to go to. It's how we decide what careers to take. It's how we decide who to marry. Who do I like? Who's who's the perfect person for me? 
Instead of going to the second definition saying, Jesus has called me. And what he's called me to is to come and die. To die to myself. To give up everything I am and embrace everything he is. So today I want to give you four principles. I would encourage you to make a note of these. Put them in your phone. Write them down. Write them in your Bible. Write them on a piece of paper. One of these four principles is probably keeping you from your calling. Keeping you from your destiny. So I'm going to give them to you real quick. So you got this scene where Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's future mom and dad, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're in this story, and the angel's going to show up to Zechariah first. Zechariah is a priest, and you find him at the temple serving the Lord. And this angel shows up to him because they don't have any kids. And he's about to tell them they're going to have a kid. So I want to show you this in verse 7 of Luke chapter 1. It says this, They, that's Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. Do you ever notice that when these stories show up in the Bible, it's always like that? It's never like, well, the angel showed up to the family with 13 kids, said you're going to have another one. It's always like the virgin will conceive, or we haven't been able to have a kid and we're 90 years old, Abraham and, and Sarah, right? Or this situation, she was barren, and they were both very old. And the angel shows up to say, you're about to have a kid. Why is that? Why does God always seem to choose people who are struggling to do something amazing? Why does he show up in our places of dishonor and disappointment to do something great? Later on in the story, we don't have time to read the whole thing today, but I'd encourage you to read all 80 verses of Luke chapter 1 this week. Just break it apart and just read 10 or 15 verses every day. And read the whole chapter because we don't have time to cover it all. But later on in the chapter, you find out Elizabeth, when she finally has a baby, she says, God has blessed me and removed this dishonor from me. She thought of it as dishonor. I thought, why is that? Why does God show up in your place of dishonor and disappointment and do something great? Why? Why? Because his strength works best in our weakness. Right? His strength is best seen in our weakness. In our strength, we are seen. But in our weakness, when God does something amazing, He is seen. And Kenny did a great job of kind of covering that last week. Don't hide from your past. Don't put on a mask to cover up your mistakes, your shortcomings, the things you don't want anybody else to know. No, instead, press into those. God will use your dishonor to show you your destiny. And so it brings us to principle number one I want to share with you today. Principle number one is this. Your destiny is revealed in your disappointment. Your destiny is revealed in your disappointment. See, God wants to restore. But how can he restore something that isn't wrecked? See, God wants to bless you. But how can he bless you if you're not honest about what's going on in your life? God wants to build you up, but how can he build you up if you aren't broken down? Instead of hiding from our disappointments and our dishonor, hiding from our past, hiding from the things we're most ashamed of, what if instead we saw those as an opportunity for God to reveal his destiny in our life, his plan for our life, his calling on our life? 
See, the devil lies to you about all those disappointments. He tries to convince you to keep them a secret. He tries to convince you that you're not good enough, that you're too dirty, that you're too messy, that you're not talented enough, that you don't have enough money and you definitely don't have enough time. So you should just fall back and hide. Fall back and be isolated. Fall back and never live with faith. And some of us are using our pain from our past to run away from the freedom that God is offering in our future. And you think, I'll just hide in the corner and everything will be okay. But that's an awful way to live. Hiding from the world because you're ashamed. In verse 8, it goes on to say, One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple. For his order was on duty that week. It seems like kind of an innocuous verse, but it just kind of hit me as I was reading through that. You know, it was Zechariah's regular routine to serve God. He wasn't doing anything special that day. It had just become his normal, everyday routine was to connect with and serve God. It's amazing how many great things you get to see when connecting with God and serving Him is just your routine. Anybody that was here last week can relate to that. You didn't wake up thinking you were going to see something amazing. But you came to church as if it were part of your normal routine and God showed up and showed off. That's what God does. You make Him part of your normal everyday routine. In other words, I like to get it the other way. I I like to say to God like, God, if you show up and show off, then I'll make you part of my routine. In other words, if you bless me financially, God, then I'll give you money. If you free up some more time in my schedule, then I'll serve you. If you increase my abilities and capacity, then I'll step up and and minister somehow. But God's way, God's blessing, God's destiny on your life is the opposite. He says, You seek first my kingdom and the things that I say are right. And then all the other things will be added to you. We always get the cart before the horse. And God's saying, no, I want to teach you this second principle. And here it is. Your destiny is waiting on the other side of obedience. Is obedience your regular routine? Do you give to God? Do you serve God? Do you step up and speak with faith and courage? Or do you fall back and disobey? Do you obey God? Maybe that scares you a little bit. You don't understand. I don't have enough money to give to God. You you don't understand. I'm not as talented or as smart or know as much about the Bible as these other people to step up and speak or to say something to somebody that needs a word of encouragement. You don't understand. I don't have enough time in my schedule to leverage any more of it for anything, even God. And it scares you to think of adding one more thing to your schedule. It scares you to think of shelling out one more dollar out of your budget. It scares you to think about even stepping up and speaking to somebody about your faith. It scares you. But that's okay. It's scared Zechariah, too. Look at verse 13. He was scared. This is what the angel said to him. He said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. 
I think God would say the same thing to you today. Don't be afraid. I know what you need. I've heard your cries. I know what your needs are. I have heard your prayers. Don't be afraid. Just trust. Just obey. See if I don't walk you into your destiny if you'll obey. See if I don't give you something greater. See if I don't use you to pave the way for something great to happen in your life. If you will just obey first. And so John the Baptist was destined for greatness. I'm going to read it to you in just a second. The angel goes on and on about what John's life is going to be like and how great he's going to be. And I'm going to read you a part of it in just a second. But before I do, I want to show you one more verse. Because your destiny is the exact same as John's. So I'm going to read you that, but don't miss this verse. We go to verse 14. It says this. You, he's still speaking to Zechariah, John's future dad. He says, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so there it is, right? He's destined to be great. Now, we don't know what that means yet. He didn't get to that yet. But he's destined to be great. But did you notice he wasn't just destined to be great? He was destined to be great in the eyes of the Lord. I thought about my life this week and I thought, how much time have I wasted trying to be great in the wrong people's eyes? How much of my life do I waste trying to impress other people? Trying to make everyone else think, I've got it together. Trying to make that one girl like you. Trying to make your neighbors think you're loaded. Trying to make your wife think you've got it all together and everything's okay, when really deep down it's not? How much of your life do you spend fronting in front of your kids instead of being real and honest with them? How much of my life do I spend trying to impress the wrong people? You say, are my kids the right people? No, they're the wrong people too. Isn't my spouse the right person? No, they're the wrong person too. God is the one that I want to be great to. Great in the eyes of the Lord not wasting my time trying to be great in the eyes of other people. We spend so much time serving lesser gods. We have small gods, and we give them everything we got. And so my question for you is, who are you trying to impress? Who are you living for? And it brings us to this third principle for today. Your destiny gets greater as your God gets bigger. I don't know where you're at on these three so far, right? But one of them's your thing. Your destiny gets revealed in your disappointment. Have you been hiding from your shame and disappointment instead of embracing that God is trying to use it for something great? Your destiny is waiting on the other side of obedience or have you been busy disobeying what God says is the right thing to do out of fear? Your destiny gets greater as your God gets bigger or have you been busy serving smaller gods? Gods of girlfriends and good grades and more money and more stuff. Gods of reputation and my image. Gods of a better house. Gods of a nicer lawn. I put all my time and effort into all of those gods. Instead of magnifying a bigger God and getting a greater destiny. Here's the last one. It's in verses 18 to 20. Zechariah responds to the angel. He says, how can I be sure this will happen? 
I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Now listen, what's about to happen in this passage is really his fault. This should be enough evidence you don't call your wife old, all right? He says, my wife is well along in years. That's bad, bad, bad juju on that, right? So don't say that. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. On the surface, this doesn't seem like such a major crime. He just doubts, right? How how will I know this is really going to happen? But he doesn't doubt his gut feeling. He doesn't doubt advice from his friends. He doesn't doubt what experience has taught him. He doubts the very words of God. Turns out God takes that pretty seriously, right? I don't know if you knew that or not. But turns out if God says something, he expects us to believe it. Now here's the thing. You always have the choice to believe what God's saying or not. But if you choose to not believe what he's saying, then the promise is life will get more difficult. Dealing with stuff will get harder. Stress levels will go up. For Zechariah in this story, it was speechless. He was speechless for nine months. He was delayed the joy of being able to tell people, I'm about to have a son. And on top of that, God told me he's going to be great. He didn't get to say a word for nine months. It stole something from him. And it gets me to this fourth principle for today. That your destiny is always disrupted by disbelief. It's always disrupted. Disbelief delays your joy. It disengages you from God's blessing and it destroys your life. Think of the joy he's missed out on for nine months. The baby showers and the get-togethers with family and the not being able to say anything about the fact he's about to have his first baby at an old age. All because he wouldn't just believe what God had said through the angel. Of course, later on in the chapter, we're not going to read these verses, but you can read them for yourself. In verses 44 and 45, this is the scene where Mary is now pregnant with Jesus, and Mary and Elizabeth are sisters or sister-in-law or something like that. Jesus and John were cousins. Right? Yeah, Jesus and John were cousins. So Jesus, so they show up to visit Elizabeth, and when Mary walks into the room, and Jesus in her belly, right, it says that John jumps in his mom's stomach, right? You remember, yeah, I heard that, if you grew up in church, you heard that story? And Elizabeth uses that story to show us the opposite of this principle, because she says this very famous thing to Mary, where she says, Mary, blessed are you among women, blessed are you among women, for you have believed that what the Lord said will happen. And she shows us the opposite of this principle, that belief brings blessing and disbelief brings difficulty. So what is John's destiny? I'm going to read it for you. The same as your destiny. You ready? It's in verses 16 and 17. Here's what the angel says to his dad. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. 
that's all we do. Like what happened at our church last week doesn't happen unless people are preparing the way. Unless people are finding other people and turning them to see the Lord. Let me show you what he's done for me. Let me tell you what he says is true. Let me show you how your life can be different if you will follow him. You prepare the way for the Lord. You turn people towards God so they can see his grace. They can hear his truth. And they can know there's a different calling on their life. A different destiny. So John is born. Instantly when he's born, they have to name him, right? They name him John and People around are like, why aren't you naming him after you, you know, uh, Zechariah the second or junior or something, you know. And so Zechariah then speaks because now his mouth is opened instantly. Verse 64, he's about to get a second chance to talk. Here's what he says. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again. And he began complaining about how he couldn't talk for the last nine months. He began letting God know how he had screwed up the whole plan. He began letting God know that he wasn't using his passions and gifts to meet the world at its greatest need. No. That verse says he began to praise God. He got a second chance. And he decided not to complain. He decided not to live in disappointment and dishonor. He decided to be obedient He decided to make himself smaller and God bigger. He decided that he was going to believe. And so he begins to praise God. And the people that are around him heard it and they reflected on these events and they asked this question in verse 66. What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Something amazing happens when you, instead of hiding from your dishonor and disappointments, embrace that God's trying to use them for something greater. When you obey God, instead of working out your own agenda. When you elevate and praise God and make him bigger with your lips, with your heart instead of making him smaller, making the world all about you. When you believe all the things he says, instead of doubting, people notice. They see it. They start to think about what kind of person this is. What kind of life is this? What kind of God has got his hand on this person's everyday life? They take notice and they start to consider the ones. You start to pave the way, to turn people's heads to see the real God. You start to pave the way for something great to show up, for something amazing to happen. I want, to know, I want you to know that every time we've baptized people in our church, every time we sit across the dinner table from somebody and hear them say, I want to follow Jesus with my whole heart, Every time somebody shows up in tears and says, I don't want to live like I've been living before, every time that happens. It happens because we decided long ago 
that it wasn't going to be about us, but we were just going to pave the way for something greater. To introduce people to the real Jesus, to let them see his grace and truth and be set free by it. You get to near the, near the end of this chapter, and Zechariah, John's dad, now his dad, right, says, begins to prophesy. He begins to speak a message from the Lord. It's written. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. You should read it. It's awesome. I'm going to read you a couple verses from it. But it sounds almost like a poetic song that he's writing. And he writes these words from the Lord about his son's life. This is what he says, starting in verse 76. And you, my little son, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. This is what we do. This is the only destiny that matters. This is the only calling that makes a difference. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. Didn't you feel like that last week? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. That's what we do every week, every life group, every church service, every one-on-one get-together, every basketball game and football game, everything we do, every light we set up, every speaker we wire in, everything we do is so people will know they can be forgiven by a merciful God who wants to shine light on their dark world and set them free to make an impact that will echo throughout eternity. That's our destiny. Not for my gifts and abilities to be better but to come and die. To come and die so Jesus can be greater. So his light can shine on our dark world.